researching all the behind the scenes stuff for this episode that this episode kind of has a love it or hate it like some people think that this is like one of the best episodes of star trek ever and other people think this is wacky um so i went into this episode as i have with a lot of these season two and definitely going into season three episodes went into this pretty blind don't know a lot about don't know anything about this episode i'm gonna be perfectly honest don't know anything about this episode didn't even know there was an episode called the omega glory that's how out of it I was. And so when we go through the recap, like we always do every week, we're going to go on quite a journey <laughs> because there's a lot of things that I like about this episode, but then there's a lot of things I'm like, what? This is wacky. I don't even know what's going on. But hey, everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. As always, my name is Matt coming to you from Austin, Texas, and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. There we go. So this week, like I said, we are doing the Omega Glory. We're almost at the end of our season two journey through the original series. Oh boy, we can't wait. And then uh, uh, we'll probably do something special in between season two and season three. We haven't quite worked out what that is yet, but uh, you know, that's in a couple of weeks. So I'm sure by the time you hear this, we'll know. We just don't know right this second. Let's, uh, well, let's get your general feelings on this episode. What do you think about it? So this is, a, I like to categorize my episodes, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a Parallel Worlds episode. And it's Parallel so Worlds parallel worlds episodes have certain qualities, okay. right? So there's a kind of weirdness, a kind of like implausibility to it, mm -hmm. which is true for every, in fact, um, it's to the point, and we've discussed this before, where they came up with like a, a made-up law, right? Right. Uh, that there was some kind of sight sociological galactic phenomenon that would make worlds end up parallel well can't we just blame this on the preservers oh we haven't yeah, gotten sure. there yet sorry <laughs> but we could you know a lot of the stuff that's going to end up being weird or that like uh will stretch credulity is often going to go to that effect it, it's mm -hmm. the conceit of the parallel world and so uh, you know, typically I kind of put that in the box and I don't worry about the fact that, uh, wait, like he knows the constitution by heart and he could just uh -huh. like recite it. That's right. weird. But of course, this is uh, a conceit to the audience, right? Because one of the other things Star Trek is famous for, right, is the famous great scientists in history. I'm thinking of Isaac Newton, uh, Watt. Galeris Blonde of Floor Blocks for, you know. <laughs> you know, they do that, right? Yeah. Great political leaders. Uh, Caesar, Napoleon, Glupton Four of, you know, <laughs> Centauri. <laughs> and uh, that, of course, while it's a, a fun conceit, we don't know who Glupton is or what he right. did, right? right? And so they could have made up a constitution that was vaguely similar. Right. It, it embodied Lockean principles and Madisonian principles, but we wouldn't recognize it. So, you know, it'd be like, sounds sounds OK, whatever. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Sounds, sounds like they're nice people with nice yeah. stuff. We're going to buy that everything they said was vitally important to the uh, foundation of the you, you know, they, Federation. They, they spoke to liberty and freedom and, you know, you know it's it all nice. We like that. That's good. Right. But, you exactly. know, it's, it's, you know, when he's like, e publista. <laughs> and he's able to turn that into we the people. Yeah, somehow. Yeah. I have questions about that, too. But we'll get there. Well, it's because, you know, it's it's a conceit, right? Right. You just got to go, that's the conceit. I, he knows English, but he can't read it somehow. Well, yeah, they're, they're all illiterate because they're they nomads know. now. That's true. I guess that's true. I guess that, that exists for that exists in the real world, too. I'm sure there are people who know English but can't read it. Actually, it's uh, surprisingly high. So, like, the, the government's measure of whether or not you're literate is mm -hmm. mostly, can you read warning labels? Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if you can read a stop sign and, like, uh, caution, floor is wet, and do not take more than two pills per day, they're like, you're, you're done. You're literate. You know, you're good to go. Yeah. Can you read the Constitution and understand what it means? Oh, no, no. Don't, don't worry about that. That's, that's a higher level of, of, you know, reasoning ability. We don't want you to know that either, in fact. The less you know well, about the Constitution, the better <laughs> it is for us. Sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> I'm sure that's not the intent. I'm sure you're right. You know, there's, there's one kind of analysis that says, imagine that any bureaucracy has been taken over by its enemies. And it's largely going to function the same way. <laughs> that sounds very British. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of bureaucratic jokes about in Britain about how bad it is. So, as I've said, this episode is some people love it, some people hate it. Here's what DC Fontana had to say about this episode. She recalls that somebody got nasty about it one time and said, "Oh, but he was saying that the United States is the greatest kind of political body." And I said, no, 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 it's the Declaration of Independence. It's the we the people. It's the words and their beautiful words. It's the expression of the ideas and the ideals that he was really talking about. Because Jean had great reverence for both the Constitution and the Declaration. She also then goes to point out that Jean could also know that the government could be wrong. As an, as an example, he was against Vietnam. You know, Churchill said that Europe was formed by history. Mm -hmm. But America was formed by philosophy. And so it's it's easier. So when you, when you look at history and you're like, oh, there's, you know, John at Runnymede. And we get Magna Carta. There's, you know, this figure at this location who does this thing. And all of those are going to be, let's say, problematic, right? We use the academic word. Sure. So you've got someone who, you know, there's often been a lot of reverence for, say, uh, um, Henry VIII's um, his chancellor, who you know, great humanist, whose name is now escaping me. Thomas More. Thomas More. So you know, we get the play "A Man of All Seasons." We get uh, you know, lots of reverence for Thomas More, right? And Thomas More, he becomes a, a martyr to. To his, you know, to standing up for what he believes and up against the government, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when Henry was interested in crushing the Protestants, he was perfectly happy to punish the Protestants, to persecute them, right? So is he a bad guy because he's a persecutor of religious minorities, or is he a hero because he stands up for his own religious convictions? 
against the state, right? And the thing is, history is always complicated, right? Because no one is either all, entirely all good or entirely all bad. But philosophy, being disembodied, can be entirely all good, right? You know, if you like those values, then you, you don't have to worry about the fact that, oh, well, so-and-so did this or so-and-so did that. Because people lived in the past, right? And so even if they were on the side of the angels most of the time, they lived in that world and they participated in the stuff that you wouldn't want to participate in. You know, even if it was uh, just the fact that they've been hardened against the death of children. And so, you know, to your eyes, you'd be like, oh, man, they're merciless. They're ruthless. How could they be that way? Children are precious. You're like, yeah, but like if half of them died, you'd probably think differently about it. Or you'd be a very, very sad person. So I feel a lot of that comes into play. <laughs> that is fair. The authors of the book, Osborne and, and uh, Cushman, say, and here is what lies the blemish of uh, this old glory. An, a misunderstanding of intent, a failure on the part of the writer and the producer and the director to better communicate the intent of the material. <clears throat> which I, I, I feel is pretty good. They wrap up their assessment by saying, this is most certainly a quality endeavor in nearly every regard, and people who don't like it should go back and give it a second chance. Behind the scenes of uh, this story are interesting. This was actually in a pile of scripts that were to be considered to be the second pilot. So instead of where no man has gone before, they, they might have done this one instead, which also makes you wonder if the show would have made it after this or not. No one seemed to love it too much, says Robert Justman, and neither did anyone at Desilu or, more importantly, NBC. During the second season, Gene Roddenberry, this being one of his stories, right, one of the things he came up with the idea for, really wanted to get this story up and running again, so he gave it to a husband and wife team with the last name of Pine, which of course has no relation to the other Captain Kirk, but... Uh, they had written as a team for both I Spy and The Big Valley. As we hear from DC Fontana, uh, she really, really didn't like this script. <laughs> she said, rather than devote 25 pages of memos to what is, what is wrong with this, since everything is wrong with this, I officially recommend that here and now we immediately pay off the pines and do not ask them to do any kind of revision on what is already unsavable. So that's pretty harsh. We know... I think and we've kind of talked about this before, like uh, in terms of I like the world as my first thing and then I like character and then I like plot. And I think you go in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. There's also the question of are you watching this because you want to you want to get the theme? You know, what is the author telling me? And I want to right. think about that and ruminate on themes, in which case you might be perfectly happy to overlook poor performance, bad staging, uh, the, the story isn't terribly interesting because you think the themes are engaging. Mm -hmm. And you want to sit and think about, oh man, a catastrophic you know, war could end everything and we're back to you know, yangs and comms and uh, you know, how would we rebuild that? Oh man, this is crazy. On the other hand, you could be interested in the story. I, I want to be entertained, I want to be engaged by character and performance and story. Mm -hmm. And you know, if the theme is interesting, well, that's nice too. 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if it's not, I don't care if the story's good. So I, I, mean, you I, know, think, I think this is one that has an interesting idea behind it, uh-huh. right? This, the, it's got this theme, and it's a very uh, Roddenberry theme, right? Yeah. About, be careful, you could destroy yourself. That, that, would, that would suck. Yeah. Whereas I'm all about, of course, plotting and plotting character world yeah. building for me at the end. It's funny because it even happened to me while I was putting together this episode was is that the first like 15 minutes like blew right by me. I was just like, eh, you know, I don't care about the comms and the yangs and blah, blah. And then by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, great. Now I got to go back to the beginning and do all that. But now <laughs> I care because I've been invested this whole hour right. about the yangs and the comms. So it's like, OK, now I'll go back. I'll add that world building because that's important to the final plot of this episode. Yeah, because there's a lot of interesting choices that are made in that world building stuff. Yeah. I know. I guess I just, I don't. Uh... Yeah, because it's people, you know, we're going to engage with the story. Right. It's like we have a checklist, right? And we're all going to start at the top of our own checklist. Right. And sometimes stories just aren't made for us. They're, they're made for True. somebody else. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that they're engaging is our five, six, seven. And we're all looking for one, two, and three, and we're not finding it. We're like, I, I, I'm not engaging with this story. Right. That's what I've heard about, like, Dune, people who have tried to read Dune. Is they're yeah. like, there's just so much world building going on that it's like, I get lost in it. I don't, I've yeah. never even tried it because I know better. But, like, but I, yeah, but I mean, I've heard people who's like, it's so hard to get to. They're like, it's fascinating and it's interesting, the stuff that I love in it, but getting to it is just so hard. Yeah. And if, if you are there because you love the world building, you know, tell me about how their politics work. Tell me about like the consequences of people defying the authorities. Tell me about yeah. you know how rules are made and how rules are enforced and, and how long these rules endure. Tell me about that. And then you're yeah. then you're loving it. And you're like, oh look, there's interesting people here too. <laughs> <laughs> it just happens. And it, apparently there are interesting situations. Isn't that quaint? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so at this point, the uh, Pines, they're dismissed, and Gene Roddenberry goes back to give it uh, another look. He's bound and determined to get this thing written. Uh, and as we've seen many times, when these scripts get rewritten and uh, the other writers and the producers all kind of come up with memos and talk about, hey, here's what we should fix, here's what we should do, blah, blah, blah. But all of those memos are eerily silent and not found when it comes to this episode. And it's only Robert Justman, who 30 years or so later says, uh, I wrote a memo that was really long and just trashed this episode. But I just decided to tear it up. I'm like, it's fine. It's Roddenberry's thing. It's his show. Let's just let's just do it. He's like, I gave him a couple of things like, you know, in person thought, hey, you know, maybe you should try this. But as and this is quoting Justman, as he says, he took the advice. But as anyone who has seen the episode knows, it didn't do much good. Stan Robertson from NBC, on the other hand, had no reason to stay quiet. He points out that in season one, he didn't like the script and feels that nothing has changed at this point. However, due to lack of the scripts and Gene Roddenberry's love for this idea, they pushed this script into production. Now, of course, as we've learned several times before, including last week, this goes against their whole contract with NBC. They're saying, NBC's like, hey, you guys have to run this stuff by us. And now again, like last week, I think, or two weeks ago, the, you know, NBC's like, if we don't love it, we're not going to air it. Just so you know. And another interesting bit of, of trivia, 
when it came to the very final draft, the one that ends up getting shot, um, Roddenberry had taken the beginning where they board the Exeter and find the, you know, the, just the, the clothes lying around and the, and the crystals and everything was actually taken out of a script written by William Shatner that started the exact same way. The rest of the script is very different, but he actually stole that whole opening of the script and uh, put it in the show. So I guess Roddenberry has Shatner to thanks for this uh, opening mystery. Which, which, like, does bother me because it makes no sense in terms of, the, like, the world building and the, like, so when we get later on the planet, we find that there's a, there's a, you know, they've had some kind of catastrophic event, you know, a nuclear war, a chemical war, a yeah. biological war, something bad happened in the deep past. And apparently it turns you into powder, you know, as opposed to just dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's one thing you get up there and there's like a bunch of dead guys with splotches on their faces, which of course we've seen before, yep. but that's actually how people die. <laughs> exactly. As opposed, as opposed to being turned into powder. Yes. And even if they were desiccated, you, you know, you'd still be like, okay, well, you know, something weird happened to them. They were attacked by the salt monster, apparently. Yeah. Well, I, and as I point out, so I'll skip it later, but as I point out in the recap, I mean, wouldn't, it, wouldn't they just turn to skeletons? Like, wouldn't, yeah. or wouldn't they're like, I mean, if, if the idea is that they've lost the moisture in their body, wouldn't yeah, they, it be skeletons or they should dried skin or, what'd you say? They should be mummies. Yeah, exactly. We should, we should find desiccated hu husks of, you know, the crew. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm sure they couldn't show that in on TV in the 60s. But, but, still. but they could. You just have to make it look like mummies. Yeah. Right? Uh, you you wouldn't make it look like real people who have you know died recently. Like if you, you know, we haven't heard from Grandma for a while. Let's go by and see why. Oh no, she's been dead for months. <laughs> that would be horrible. But you know. Thousands of year old Egyptians that you might look at in a museum, uh -huh. you could put that on TV. Yeah. That'd be weird to have them already wrapped in bandages, but. Uh... <laughs> so, uh, Vincent McVitie. <laughs> chasing Gavin and Costello around the Enterprise. Why, uh, why is he actually wearing a Ramsey's headdress? <laughs> exactly. So weird. <laughs> so Vincent McEvity comes back as his fifth episode to direct. He brings on Morgan Woodward, who they have worked with several times before. Uh, Cushman says he is prematurely gray at the age of 42, and he plays Captain Ron Tracy. Woodward said Omega Glory was, was simply good man gone bad, perhaps because of some ego-induced insanity. Captain Tracy didn't become a starship Captain, by being a jerk or a bad guy, it was just a good man gone bad, and that's how I tried to play him. So, this problem, I think, is one very realistic, but we don't often see it, right? So, when I watch Harry Potter, um, I always think, in the end, all these guys are going to become necromancers. They're, they're all going to be making horcruxes because we mm -hmm. all want to live forever. And when you look around at real people who are confronting mortality crises, like most of them would go to extreme um, you know, measures yeah. to, to just get a little more time. And so I think, you know, everyone 
this guy, oh, it's a fountain of youth. He's he's at the age, you know, where he's feeling his his aging. He's like, I don't know how long I can keep doing this. You know, uh, I get the creaks. I got, you know, that old injury from Gamma Alpha 7. Yeah. I'm getting uh, forgetful. Yeah. I can't remember who Thomas Moore is. <laughs> I think he fought in Portugal. <laughs> and uh, so, like, the idea of longevity, I get more time. I get more. That's I, that, I think that's so powerful. I think it would be extremely rare for someone to be able to go, nope, it's all right. Don't need this. Don't need extra time. Don't need extra whatever. Yeah. So I, I think it'd be really, really hard not to get captains who, and we've seen it before, right? I mean, in the sense, the whole Federation does this. It's the uh, insurrection movie. Mm-hmm. Everyone can be tempted by eternal life, eternal health, vigor, youthfulness. So it's also fun to point out at this point that Morgan Woodward, who played Captain Tracy, also appeared on Star Trek as Simon Van Gelder in Dagger of the Mind, which was also directed by McVitie. David L. Ross returns as Lieutenant Galloway after being prominently featured in Miri, The Return of the Archons, A Taste of Armageddon, and The City at the Edge of Forever. But his biggest part here, with dialogue and a death scene. But, don't worry, much like Lieutenant Leslie, he'll be back later. <laughs> <laughs> to which I wrote, how does this kind of stuff fit into canon? <laughs> well, again, it's episodic, right? Right. They're not thinking about continuity. Exactly. I just, you know. Or thinking like, we need an actor to fill in. Let's get this guy. Right. And they're not thinking, you know, people will watch and they'll know that this guy died. And so going forward, he can't be part of. At least he's, you know, he's, we got to put him in a beard or a mustache or, you know, right. change his hair dramatically and, and give him a different color shirt. Right. Yeah. So what's her name? Uh, Susie Plack from Next Generation. She played Worf's wife. She played the Vulcan doctor. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think she played an ambassador at one point. You know, she, they use her a lot. But in... Next generation, they put a lot of makeup on her every time. Mm-hmm. First, she's a Klingon, then she's a Vulcan. No one's going to go, hey, wait, it's the same person. <laughs> You've got a whole series of, of actors, especially you know, when they're doing Next Generation, um, the, uh, the other shows. <laughs> yes, DS9. Voyager, and... Yeah, Voyager, DS9, and Enterprise, in which, you know, this guy's been in 16 episodes. It's totally different characters. Yeah. Or. He's uh, been in all of them. I, there's one of them. The guy who played Wei Yoon was also like the key Andorian in Enterprise. Mm. Right? I mean, it's like he had two big roles. Yeah. But just totally different makeup. Well, my, my thought was is that maybe this is just, you know, continuing the riff from Lower Decks where people on the bridge just get to come back to life. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's why you have a joke like that, right? Exactly, yeah. Because it's it's true. But I, I think that at this point, they think they're making episodic television. And like, they're yeah. just not paying attention. It's exactly. the thing that you only notice in reruns. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of extended fridge logic. All right. Well, uh, that's all I got behind the scenes. So let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. 
they are on approach to Omega 4 or Omega, whichever one you prefer. Omega is... So in the Doctor Who three episodes... Doctors, not episodes, Doctors, the episode called Three Doctors. Omega is the name of the bad guy. Omega is also the way that people with British accents usually say the word Omega. But if you've been watching anything from Star Wars and their animated show, The Bad Batch, you also know that New Zealanders say Omega. So um, what I'm saying is there's lots of different ways in the world to say Omega. Back to the show. Omega-4, they're on their way to. If you didn't notice, Sulu gets a new gadget on his on his the ship i don't know exactly what it does it looks like it's a, a binocular extenders or i don't know what it is some kind of scanner of some kind it's the only time i've ever seen it that's for sure uh they do a scan they find out it's the exeter and it's been lost for six months so kirk spock bones and galloway beam aboard the exeter uh, i wonder which of these guys is going to die they find uniforms scattered throughout the engineering section of the exeter with piles of salt we don't know. Dun, dun, dun. Credits. I think it's obvious. <laughs> I do, too. I, I thought so, too. I'm like, is this again because we're genre savvy or? Yeah, so we've had way too many episodes in which people can be turned into dust and then rematerialized with, like, by reversing the ray. Yeah. Or bringing back, yeah, back the pile somehow. Yeah, every, uh. Every science fiction has seemed to, at some point, done the piles of dust people. Right. Exactly. Back at it, Kirk makes an announcement over the comms of the Exeter. If anyone hears me, please respond. Spock finally answers. He says, no one is aboard, but we are checking out the lower decks. So that's some pretty nice cross-show consistency. That's amazing. On the bridge, they find little else. Spock checks the command logs. Maybe this holds the key. They're not salt, we find out. It's the leftover traces of the human body when the water is taken away. And it's only worth $3.54. <laughs> exactly. Well, he also says that it's like 95% of the human body, but I guess the truth is actually it's closer to 60, so... You know, we are just ugly bags of mostly water. That's right. Maybe the future is more hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. They find the last log. If you are on the ship, then you are already a dead man. Thanks. That's a great log to find. Uh, yeah, that's what one... you want to put in a buoy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't come aboard the ship. It's a contamination zone. The log says, Captain Tracy is... Uh... And then he dies. You also, this is why players, when they play games like this, mm-hmm. it's like everywhere they go, they're in like full contamination suits and body armor and because i don't know whether i'm gonna am i gonna fight the tardigrade on this ship or am i gonna catch am i gonna catch the disease that turns me into a pile of salt i don't know i'm gonna prepare for both i'm gonna prepare for everything i'm gonna have a type 28 phaser rifle (laughs) taking all the fun out of it yeah (laughs) and making the dm's job harder well the thing is that's why you end up with like crazy challenges Mm-hmm. Right. It's because, well, you prepared yourself for all the normal stuff. 
we can't just have a regular episode of Star Trek. We have to have Star Trek Reloaded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to the max. So this mystery so far, it's kind of fascinating. You know, something's happened to the ship. The water's taken out of their bodies. Coming aboard, you've signed your death warrant. you got to get to the planet, and there's something going on with Captain Tracy. Although, you know, if I was given a, a one set over on the script... Uh, you had to cut all that. I would do, I would do more world building. Uh-huh. And this is what I would do. Um, so one of the things that's, that everyone says is one of the great things about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan... Is that you have that twist in which, for the first third of the movie, you think that you are going to assist Carol Marcus with the Genesis Project and it's some kind of sciencey thing, and right, uh, and then whoa, it's Khan! It's a whole new game, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, just a few lines of dialogue to establish we've been searching for the Exeter now for three weeks. It was lost on this kind of a mission, deep space, you know, survey. Uh, and then, you know, you, you establish a little bit of context, right? So that we think we're watching a, the ship has been lost episode. What happened? It's a mystery. We're going to find out what happened to the ship. And then we're like, whoa, <laughs> this is a whole different story. Death. So we go down to the planet. One more mystery. We see a man is about to be decapitated. A girl similarly dressed to him is screaming about it. And then Tracy appears and stops the execution. All right. Tracy looks like he's a fine, upstanding uh, United Federation of Planets captain. He tells Wu, who looks to be a man of Asian descent, as does everyone but the two people who are about to be decapitated, who look like regular old uh, American people. Not American people. What am I trying to say? Uh, Anglo-Saxon people. Um, well, you think about California in the 60s, and that's probably yep. what they all look like. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He tells Wu, go bring these savages to the brig. But Wu says, they have fireboxes as well. Dun, dun, dun. Tracy waves Wu toward the woman, and off they go. Then we get this sudden and quick info dump. The savages are, from, are people from the wilderness. They're called Yangs. They can't communicate, he says. Interesting that the locals know about phasers, Spock is quick to point out. And you know, one of the things that we don't often get watching the original series, but that really gets uh, doubled down on when we meet Valeris and uh, she's from Cheers. Kirstie Alley, uh, yes. Savick. Savick, is, is this propensity for the Vulcans to enforce the rules, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, but we're not supposed to use anything but maneuvering thrusters in space dock. Uh, when encountering another ship, we're supposed to raise our shields. <laughs> you know, these kinds of things, right? Yeah. And, and But Spock does it. If you watch for it, Spock often is quoting the regulations. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, if they realize, you know, Spock quotes the regulations a lot. Let's have the other Vulcans do that, too. Planet of Hats. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? Right, yeah. And I, I love, I'm going to diverge again to the uh, uh, Lower Decks, when they did that episode where they had the the Vulcan and the Klingon and the, all the different characters. Mm-hmm. And the uh, I, I think she was supposed to play the main character. She was the main character. Uh, but the, the Vulcan woman who was, like, innovating and doing science and then 
looking at oh, things yeah. that she wasn't supposed to. And they're all like, you are breaking the rules. We do not like this. You are, you are indulging in your curiosity in a way that is <laughs> far too emotive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all about the rules. <laughs> Crazy Vulcans. We are going to send you to a Federation ship. We think you will be <laughs> much happier is, there. She's very Vulcan, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the other Vulcans are like, you are out of the, out of control. You are off the chain. <laughs> exactly. Discipline is required. I know you just saved the ship. We're putting you on work assignment. The Combs, we find out, are city dwellers. We find out, too, that when uh, the Exeter first landed here, the rest of the landing party beamed up. And the landing party brought a weird disease to the Exeter that took over all of its crew. The only reason Tracy hasn't died is because he stayed on the planet. I'm just as infected as they were. As you are. Dun, dun, dun. Apparently there's some sort of natural immunization on the planet. And it protects everyone. Unfortunately, not any of us will be able to leave the planet. Cut to the next scene. Captain's Log. Supplemental. I'm, I'm going to go back to our, one of our previous episodes, M5, sure. right? Okay. And M, M5 is thinking, you know, you send the geologist and the astrophysicist, and that's all you need. You're done. You don't yeah. need to bring Kirk and McCoy down. No, always bring the doctor. When you don't bring the doctor down, then the captain thinks, I can never leave the planet. I need to take over and become emperor. <laughs> exactly. But when you bring the doctor, he's like, yeah, we, we're immune already. <laughs> it's good. We can go back to the ship. <laughs> Exactly. So we find out that they are definitely stuck here. But in his supplemental, Kirk says, the biggest question is, is Tracy breaking the prime directive? It's funny. I don't know if his priorities are exactly straight here. I mean, or maybe they are as a good UFP uh, 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 captain. But, I mean, you know, shouldn't he be more worried about, like, hey, are we going to die? Or is there going to be a way to solve it? Or is he just, like, assuming that, like, McCoy's got this. I'm not too worried about it. We do find out from Captain Kirk that a, a captain should sacrifice his life and his crew for the Prime Directive. It's really setting up some uh, high priorities there on the Prime Directive. Well, so, you know, like... Uh... I think what they're thinking of is Captain Cook in the Pacific, right? Mm -hmm. They're thinking of these explorers who would show up on islands and, like, create these bizarre, you know, like, well, you're a British protectorate now. Yep. Or, um, you know, we've introduced firearms to your island and suddenly there's a civil war. You know, which is like the whole Japanese problem, right? Who had They had to ban both Christianity and firearms mm -hmm. because the shoguns weren't going to be in control anymore if it didn't work that way. And so, you know, it's like, well, Captain Cook's got to die. That's just how it's going to be. <laughs> He's got to be Magellan. <laughs> Bones has seen, uh, has seen the infection inside, and it's massive. And they are being immunized by something on the planet. His only lead is that it is similar to an infection that was created on Earth during their bacterial warfare of the 1990s. I guess I missed that one. There's a lot of things we've missed. I know. So it's a sad thought that I uh, that I wrote down. I, it's funny because if we were to believe what George, Gene Roddenberry has had to say about Star Trek is that it's a hopeful look at our at our future that this will someday happen to us. The problem is, is that by setting all of this stuff in the 1990s, 
you know, mm -hmm. the war and genocide and the nuclear bombs and all of that stuff. Like very quickly, we broke that cycle. <laughs> so true. now it's like, is this really a bright view of what our planet can be? Yes, it just won't be that. <laughs> <laughs> we missed all the stuff that made us that. Well, and, and I think, you know, he had the sense that we were going to make mistakes and we were going to screw stuff up and it was going to be bad. Yeah. And if this is this is part of that allegory, right, that you, you really need to be careful because this can go too far. We can end up thinking, well, we're just, you know, standing up for whatever, Vietnam, and suddenly we're yangs and comms, and nope. we live in a thousand years and cutting each other's heads off. That's right. Suddenly, Spock bursts into the room with Galloway, who is very hurt. There's even blood on Kirk's sleeve after he helps him down. Spock said that the Yangs are indeed vicious. And indeed, Tracy is correct when he says that they are massing attacks. However, the one thing that Captain Tracy was less than truthful about. Spock has found some phaser power packs scattered among several hundred dead Yangs. That's a lot. Captain, yeah. Tracy, Captain Tracy must have used his phaser to ward them off, he says. Now, uh, this is interesting. Obviously, this is sort of like Bones' normal, like, spot here. But Bones jumps to Tracy's defense by saying, well, he lost his ship. He lost his crew. And he found these peaceful townsfolk. And he's just trying to protect them. You know, I mean, he gave him shelter. And they read him bedtime stories. And they took crusts <laughs> off his bread. They really, like, took care of this guy. <laughs> Might have made one or two of those up. I don't know. <laughs> shared pots of green tea with him. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Bones does defend him there, and Spock uh, pops back with, the rules surrounding the Prime Directive are quite harsh, but quite clear, Captain. If you do not act, you will be considered, you will be considered equally as guilty. And I will tell on you. That's right. Because <laughs> I follow the rules. I'm a Vulcan. Kirk calls Tracy a fool and then goes to contact the Enterprise to make them aware of Tracy's tomfoolery. But just as the communicator clicks open, Tracy enters the room, phaser in hand. He says, I'll be making the next communication, Captain. Kirk slowly closes the communicator as Galloway, still on the floor, slowly reaches for his phaser. Tracy, in a shocking move, doesn't hesitate and shoots Galloway. And he dies. Commercial. Back at it. Kirk is pissed. The comms, comms, the comms rush in and take their phasers and communicators. Tracy contacts the Enterprise and tells them that Kirk and the rest were possibly not immunized quickly enough. They were found unconscious. Sulu informs Tracy that the medical team would be happy to beam down and help out. But Tracy says, no, no, no. There is no more reason to risk more lives. Ah, uh, no, ah, uh, sorry, no. Worried about people, sickness, no. Must be a nice ace to hold up his sleeve. You know, we've got, uh, you know, level seven uh, life protection gear here. We can set him down with a full hazmat suit if you'd like. You know, we, we actually have, like, space suits here, too. That's right. We're prepared for all of it. <laughs> <laughs> What's fun in this scene, too, happening in the background, is, is that when Tracy first flips open the communicator, clerk like... Not clerk. <laughs> Kirk... <laughs> Losing it. Uh, well, I mean, it's a whole different set. Captain Clark. <laughs> Captain Clark. He gets the, the paperwork in on time. <laughs> it's 
the uh, Star Trek movie written by Kevin Smith. <laughs> Captain Clerk. <laughs> I wasn't anyway. even supposed to be on the bridge today. <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to beam over to the Exeter. <laughs> Uh, so what I was saying was, is that when Tracy first flips open the communicator, Kirk takes a casual step towards him. You know what I mean? It's like when you see sort of someone sketch you walking by your car, you're like, uh, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to. Okay. And the whole time that Tracy is talking, Kirk is like, just like, he's so upset. You could just see, he just wants to like stop him and grab the, the phase or, you know, the communicator out of his hand or whatever. And finally he can't keep it in. Right. So he yells Sulu and he's immediately struck down. Spock tries to make a move, but Tracy wields the phaser to cover all of them. They need to have a safe word. That's right. Yeah, well, exactly. Bananas! <gasps> the captain said bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we learned that in Star Trek too, right? Any any communication that might be listened to? Uh... Yeah. Uh, Sulu calls back down. Tracy says that it was in Kirk's delirium that made him call out. Sulu tells Tracy to let Kirk know that everything on the ship is a-okay. Tracy out. Next scene, Kirk is lying on the floor and conscience tied as the guard walks around the room. But it's all a trap. Kirk takes the guard out. Ah, but unfortunately, Tracy just happens to be on the other side of the door and comes in with the phaser raised. Tracy decides to have a tete-a-tete with Kirk. Kirk, first thing out of his mouth is to lay down the rules for his arrest. All right, all right, you've said your words. You're covered, says Tracy. Kirk's next word, why? Tracy says, direct and succinct. I'm like, well, it was only one word. You can't get much more succinct than that, I guess. Uh, so uh, I, I had a chemistry professor once uh -huh. who said that uh, uh, he once handed in a, a paper to, when he was in school, to one of his professors, blank. He just, he hadn't, didn't realize it was a pop quiz that day, wasn't prepared, had nothing, you know, didn't understand, just turned in blank page. Gets ten percent credit. He's like, "Why? Ain't some brevity." <laughs> I always give ten percent for neatness and brevity. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, we find out that uh, no native on the planet has ever been sick. Wu, the guard, is actually forty-two years of the Redbird old. But a year the Redbird is actually every 11 years. That means he's actually 462 years old. Dun, dun, dun. His father is well over a thousand. Meanwhile, during all of this, we've seen Kirk untying his hands. The conversation continues. Tracy sends Wu out of the door. Tracy then says that he wants McCoy to find whatever it is that's keeping them alive, make a serum, and then negotiate their way out of trouble and into a whole fleet of ships. He's betting that the Federation won't care about a few dead Yang after they discover this serum. Which leads us down an interesting thought that you kind of started earlier, and I'll continue now. Which is, uh, you know, if we look at, for instance, what maybe, you know, Mengele and the Nazis were doing in concentration camps, right? Those horrible experiments, they were running on people. But what if this information actually ended up being, like, usable, you know? Oh, what it, are the moral it, conundrums of that? So that did happen, and we did use it. One of Mengele's there experiments was to dunk people into very cold water and see how fast hypothermia would set in. Oh, and great. this was totally information we used uh, to, you know, create like how to survive 
uh, getting in the water in the North Atlantic kind of a situation during the 50s. Yeah, we, we had no problem, no moral, com- just like we were willing to use their rocket scientists. Mm-hmm. We uh, we were happy to use the the science from the death camps to to like treat burns or right. hypothermia and these various kinds of things. Well, so then we must assume that the Federation might do any all of those things to uh, get That's their right. hands on this on this serum. And it's also what we see in insurrection. Yep. Right. Kirk's hands are now free, and he jumps Tracy. Tracy just karate chops Kirk and uh, gets back onto his feet. Kirk swings at Tracy. Tracy punches back, sending Kirk back onto the floor, where, conveniently, there are some nice soft bags for Kirk to lay on. Tracy is winning the battle. He blocks a punch and then karate chops Kirk again, who falls on the soft, comfortable bags once again on the floor. They take Kirk to the jail. They send McCoy back to work. He tells Wu to get ready to ambush the Yangs. But there are Yangs in the jail. And it looks like they understood what uh, what uh, Tracy was saying. Hmm. Kirk then steps uh, towards one of the Yang, but the Yang grabs at him too. They're animals, Jim, says Tracy. They just happen to look like us. Do you still think the Prime Directive is justified? He asks. I don't think that we had the courage or the wisdom to decide how a planet should evolve. Well, well obviously, they don't have the information yet either, right? Right, exactly. Because by, by the end of it, Kirk is entirely justified. Now, this may be the work of the author. <laughs> Weird. But, uh, in fact, it, it, like it's constantly supported in history, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you go someplace, you're like, oh, they're primitive. We should bring them whatever. And it's, it's at best a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Well, if logic won't work, says Tracy. Was that logic? <laughs> Pushing him towards the Yang and the Yang tried to attack him? I don't know. But anyway, Tracy throws Kirk into the cell with the Yangs. The it's Yangs, empiricism. Attack. It's the what? It's the opposite of logic. It's empiricism. Yeah, right. Exactly. Wasn't logic at all. Damn, Tracy. Uh, yeah, so Kirk like, tried... well, Because uh, Star Trek is not written by science historians... Or philosophers, uh-huh. <laughs> right? right? So there's these these two competing worldviews, right? One is rationalism, and right. the other one is empiricism, right? And you know, so one says, uh, you know, we're gonna think things through from a rich, you know from first principles, and then we're gonna deduce what an elephant should look like. And the other one is like, no, we're gonna go out in the field, we're gonna find an elephant. And so you get you know these big debates between guys like Locke and Descartes and. Uh, you know, all their subsequent dudes. And really, science needs to use both of them, so hopefully Spock is able to embody some empiricism when he needs to be, although he's normally wearing the rationalist hat. Yeah, but pushing the guy in the room and going, see what they're like? Do you understand now when you see it? Oh, yeah, we are. We are deep into Lockean empiricism here. So the Yang's attack... (laughs) Forgot to put myself on mute. Uh, so the Yangs attack. Kirk tries not to attack back, but it's a losing battle. Spock watches as Kirk is taken down into a chokehold, all while the music from Arena plays in the background. We cut to McCoy in his lab. He sees a comb guard asleep, standing up. Pretending to write, he sort of moseys over to the table and attempts to pick up a weapon, but immediately the combs throws a sword down onto the table. 
But McCoy pretends he's not reaching for the weapon. That he's trying to grab his drink. So there. Meanwhile, back in the cell, the fight continues between the Yangs and Kirk. Kirk grabs the female Yang and holds her. Uh, and the other Yang does not attack. But then she bites him and Kirk throws her back into the other Yang. But now the male Yang is keeping himself between Kirk and the female. Kirk finally flips the male Yang and Spock uses the Vulcan hand pinch on the, to take out the female. Good thing that worked. Just that they happen to have the right physiology to uh, make that work. Kirk says, too bad he can't teach me that. I've tried, Captain. <laughs> says a very sassy Spock. Uh, Kirk also then gives him some serious side eye. And then the male goes to the floor to protect the female Yang. Back in his lab, a beautiful comb female brings McCoy some food. And that's it. <laughs> that's all that happens in that scene. A beautiful female comb comes in, puts down food. McCoy smiles at her. She smiles at him. And then they walk out. And that's all that happens in that scene. <laughs> well, don't, let's don't know not why. forget that, you know, McCoy's, you know, McCoy's always got a little something going on in the side there. <laughs> apparently, apparently. Uh, back into the cells. Spock is uh, trying to loosen one of the bars in the window. They discuss why things are the way they are on the planet. Was it a biological war or a nuclear war? You keep on working on that bar to get us our freedom. And then, in surprise, the Yang talks. Freedom, it says. Freedom is apparently a very religious word in the Yang language. Why do Kirk you use the sacred words? That's right. Kirk says, it is for us too. But you live with the Combs. We are prisoners too. Kirk and Yang work together to loosen the bar. They loosen it, and as Kirk turns around to yell, don't worry, Spock, we're going to get you right out of there, the Yang, pow, knocks him right on the back of the head and uh, knocks him out. The Yang then goes back to loosen the rest of the bars. We cut away as Kirk lies unconscious. Bum, bum, bum. Back from commercial, Kirk finds that the Yangs are gone. How long was I out, Spock says. Seven hours and eight minutes, according to Spock. And in the seven hours and eight minutes that Spock had not much to do other than sit there and count the seconds of Kirk, <laughs> uh, he did not happen to see a set of keys lying on the floor. Keys lying on the floor after everything this else that we've why, been through. No matter like what M5 says, you, you sit down to the planet, you always send the captain. <laughs> That's right. Meanwhile, in McCoy's lab, Spurk, uh, Spock and Kirk have now gotten their way out and uh, find their way there. McCoy, in the meantime, has found Especially that if your captain has defeated the Kobayashi Maru. That's right, by cheating. You don't leave that guy on the bridge. That's right. He always finds a way out, even if it just happens to be that somebody left some keys on the floor. Well, if nobody else is going to notice him. Including Spock, somehow. Uh... McCoy says that there was a biological war here, but that nature has found its own way to counterbalance it with natural immunizations. McCoy says that the sad part is that had the Exeter crew stayed on the planet a little longer, they would have been naturally immunized and stayed alive. Kirk asks McCoy about Tracy's plan to find the fountain, the fountain of youth. Says it just like that. He says, no, it was survival of the fittest. The people who survived the war 
already had stellar, naturally good immunosystems, and so their descendants would, of course, just lived longer. Duh. <laughs> not so sure that that's good evolutionary theory, but yeah, okay. Probably not, no. Uh, nothing that they can develop here will actually change anything. Spock then finds a way to communicate with the ship, but just as he tries it, that damn Tracy reappears again. He shoots Spock. Oh my gosh, McCoy and Kirk go to him instantly. Tracy is pissed. Did you free the natives? They warned the other tribes, tribesmen. We killed hundreds and they just kept coming. Tracy's really lost it by this point. Kirk and McCoy are basically ignoring him. McCoy says we need better facilities if he's gonna get any better. Tracy goes on ranting about the fountain of youth and McCoy tells him the truth. Tracy doesn't believe him. So then Kirk just yells at him. There is no serum, he says. All of this was for nothing. Tracy loses it even further. And he tells Kirk, outside. Outside or I'll burn both your friends down now. Dun, dun, dun. So they're outside. Kirk asks where everyone is. Tracy says either dead or hiding. We're just down to these two. Tracy wants Kirk to call the ship. Get as many phasers down here as they'll send before the Yangs arrive. Kirk says, it'd just be easier if we just beam out. But Tracy wants his phasers. Kirk calls the ship and asks for the phasers. Sulu says, I can't do that without authorizations. Are you in danger, sir? No immediate danger, Kirk out. You have a well-trained bridge crew, Kirk, says Tracy. Kirk then swats the phaser away and Tracy punches Kirk. So it's interesting here, and I'll talk more about this later, but it's interesting here because so far we have seen Tracy just kick Kirk's ass all over this episode. He's just beat him up several times. Interesting, though, that they did... I mean, I understand that they... they they He's taller than Kirk. Tracy's a really tall guy, and he's a great actor. But it's interesting that, you know, they cast this guy to be, like, the more powerful, the more stronger person to take down... Kirk, just a thought. Well, I think there's also a, um, we don't want Kirk to win this because he defeats, um, you know, the other guy physically. Mm -hmm. We want him to win because he says the magic words at the end. Smart, outsmarts him. Yeah. Then in an amazing shot, Kirk rounds the corner looking for a place to hide, and then he dives over part of a broken wall. It's a pretty amazing shot here. Tracy shoots. Kirk dives out of frame again, then into another shot where Kirk is quietly looking for Tracy. He turns around, and there, and there, Tracy is, phaser drawn. And there's some the the axe from the very first scene on the planet sits between them. Tracy fires, but he's out. No energy left in the power pack. Kirk rushes for the axe, but Tracy beats him there too. Axe in hand now. Tracy goes after Kirk. Kirk pushed up against a wall, uses the call as he uses the wall as leverage and jumps back at Tracy. They struggle as two spears pop into frame. Is it the comb come to save Tracy? No, it's the Yangs who take them back to their tribe. Back in their tribe, uh, Spock is brought in. He is weak, but he has to be there because he's an important part of this next scene. That's right. <laughs> they talk. And in a moment, they realized Something that I personally could not believe that they were about to do while discussing the American Indians. They realized that Yangs means the Yankees 
and that combs are for communists. The parallel is almost too close, says Spock. Let's just lampshade the, uh, the ridiculousness here. Yes, exactly. By just saying, yeah, we know, we know. Let's move on. Uh, Spock speculates that on this planet that uh, the war we had didn't happen here. Oops, the opposite. That the war we didn't have happened here. And in this case, the Asiatics won. We have always been at war with East Asia. Yeah, apparently. But we find out that the Yangs are trying to get their land back. So here we are on another parallel Earth. <laughs> I wrote, man, we popular. <laughs> it's like, how, how come we have all of these planets? We talked about this earlier. But how come we have all of these planets that are just taking, take, you know, that are just doing what we did? And then, in a moment, that is almost over the top, in walks a man with a drum, and then the American flag follows in. And even then, to even top it off and make it worse, they play the national anthem in the score. Yep. So by the time we get to say DS9, right? DS9 yep. is clearly a like a Nazi allegory in which the Cardassians are the Nazis. Right. And um you know, basically, Bajor is a large prison camp. But the thing is, because of the prosthetics and the fact that instead of going parallel worlds, they instead do, oh, no, they have their own culture and they, they drink Drakkar and, you know, these guys drink, you know, Ractaginos and these people do this and these people do that. <laughs> instead, we were, we were totally willing to just, oh, no, it's, it's Cardassians and Bajorans. Mm-hmm. But it's really no different. It's just that when you pull out the flag and like, Iplablista, <laughs> and you actually put the national anthem in the score, it does feel like you're hitting me with a hammer. Yes, yes. Whereas watching the Cardassians and the Bajorans, you're like, ooh, thoughtful. Exactly. I think, you know, and it's funny because as we were talking earlier about the other parallel universes that we've seen, uh, you know, Miri, that was that, yeah. uh, that was one of the first ones. And then, you know, some of the other you're like, OK, but they didn't evolve the same way. You know what I mean? But yeah. here, not only are we like <laughs> E Pluribus Unum and, and, and the American flag and all of these things, you're like, this is just. And patterns of force. Yes. Yeah. With the Nazis. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and the the have we done the. Uh, the mobsters? Yes. A piece of the action? Yes. Yeah, so you, know, you get some of these that are like, but that's just a little too on the nose. Yeah. That's not a and, parallel Earth, though. That's where they landed on a planet, left the, someone left the Mobsters of Chicago book. Right. And then they, they developed. So even, I'm like, I'm willing to forgive that. You know what I mean? I'm like, that's yeah. a nice little story about how it evolved, not just like, oh, it just naturally happened. It's Except amazing. This- All these things fell into place. Like part of our problem is we're living in the world before good alien makeup. Well, right? that's true. Yes. And in that context, there, the, I think we also think that the audience isn't clever enough to get allegories and metaphors and so forth, and that you can't do Cardassians and Bajorans and people who are like, oh, I understand what's going on. Ooh, but I like it. Instead, they're like, no, if, if, if we don't like hit them over the head with it, they won't get it. Yeah. And I think. I think lessons are learned and you can tell as, you know, things go on, things become more sophisticated. Yeah. I was going to say that I I was going to say, if this was a next generation episode, they totally would have put some kind of, you know, 
prosthetic on their head to at least make them look like, well, they're not 100% like us. <laughs> right. And, and you'd be led to believe that their physiology was different in the whole nine yards rather than... Because one of the things that you'd imagine as time goes on, as we get into the next generation, finding long-lived species would make you go, oh my God, there's a fountain of youth. We have to capture it. <laughs> True. It's, you know, like... What Starfleet captain finds out that the Vulcans live as long as they do and go, we need to invade Vulcan and take it. <laughs> they have a serum. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Here's the thing is that I feel like if done correctly, this could have been a super cool reveal. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, again, I, and I'm sure in the 60s it probably was. But, you know, and I think, again, had it been at least some other, like, alien thing that was sort of like our planet, da 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 and they came in with the flag, that kind of would have been cool. You know what I mean? It's kind of like Planet of the Apes, right? You right, know, at right. the end we see the thing, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's blown away, blah, blah, blah. But I don't you're know. This, <laughs> exactly. This is just, it's too over the top. You know what? Uh, there was a show in the 90s that was called Sliders where they, like, slide from parallel dimensions. Yeah. Like that was the whole thing. They're like, it's not planet to planet. It's like par parallel earth, parallel earth. That's how they were, you know, that's what they were sliding to. So that's, you know, that's kind of what it, this felt like to me. It was just another episode of that show. From, And again, ha on that, in the context of that world, that would have made a lot more sense to me than it did here. Yeah, I think they're still working through some of the stuff about like how to do good allegory. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I write, the question of finding life in space right you know is questionable right now right astronomical odds that there are that there's even life on other worlds now let's make that the odds of another planet that evolved just like earth up until the 20th century when then a big war yeah. happened well and right. you know you have the problem again because we're in the in the time before good alien makeup right everyone's gonna look like a human mm-hmm i'm uh, sorry i was just thinking about how like how next generation would have done this. So yeah, they would have done it with the prosthetic. They would have had prosthetics, so we wouldn't have even known. And the reveal of the Yangs and the comms wouldn't have happened until after the reveal of the American flag. Like they would have brought in the American flag and you would have been like, whoa, this is some kind of like, you know, weird parallel universe on a, you know, with a strange alien people and blah, well, blah, see, blah. I, and I, then I don't, I don't think that would have even been done. I think that instead they would have just trusted that the audience would understand that if, if you have enough keywords We'll recognize that these are, you know, the 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 liberals, and mm -hmm. these are the socialists, mm -hmm. and uh, these liberals are a lot like us, and these are some, you know, hardcore, you know, they're not like, hey, energy's free, no one needs to work, uh, you know, uh, utopian socialists. They were the right. tyrannical, you know, we we got to massacre millions of people to, because the kulaks still own land. Another funny thing about when I was watching this, again, the journey, is, is that I thought that that fight between him and Tracy at the end was it. And then I realized, wow, there's another like 15 minutes of this episode. That's crazy. So uh, I've been watching a lot of fight choreography videos, especially uh, Jill Barrup. Okay. And uh, That sounds like so for something for you to be watching, but okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean... So she talks about like how the, the purpose of fights is to advance the narrative plot. Right. But we're supposed to learn something. These characters aren't supposed to be the same after the fight. Uh, but she did a long thing on The Witcher. Mm -hmm. And so Henry Cavill, of course, is really good at this. 
He's yeah. his own stuntman, right? And how this makes it so possible for them to make these great fight scenes because Henry Cavill's good at this. And then you can, you can, you then have the decision. Do we pair him with an actor who needs a stuntman to do the fighting, but can emote properly and give you all the close up act? Oh, I feel the emotions. Or do you pair them with a stunt person whose acting will be kind of wooden, but can look good in the fighting? Yeah. Right. Because you could always show Henry Cavill. Because yeah. he, can, he can be, he's his own stuntman. And think about how good fights have gotten today and how, in a sense, just as the plot reveal and the parallel worlds are goofy, the fights are goofy too. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a stand in for fighting. Yeah. Right? We watch it go, oh, look, they're fighting. I understand what's going on. I don't believe it, but I'll accept it. <laughs> right. And it, it's the shot. same. Yeah, it's the same kind of like, yeah, this is just, it's stage combat, right? It's, yeah. And we're up close. So we're, we, there's no, uh, are those two guys fighting? Oh my goodness, they're fighting. I wonder what's going on. I can't see anything because it's like both men are like an inch tall to me. But <laughs> so it's, it's just another one of those things that's uh, got to evolve. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, and the, 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 the thing I always, I won't say I forget it, but the thing that I always think is interesting is it's like TB is still developing at this point. Oh, oh, absolutely. You know, so it's, so we're just, we're getting it all. We're figuring it all out. Yeah, there's a lot of learning curve going on here. I mean, mm-hmm. by the time you get to next generation, so much has been learned and discovered. It, it just feels much more sophisticated in terms of like, uh, we don't need to do this kind of parallel world stuff. We don't need to do right a lot of these things because... In fact, I think it's one of the reasons that they don't do the, the mirror universe. You know, the, the mirror universe is brought back in DS9 for campy reasons. Oh, really? Right? Well, I mean, it's... it's I don't it, think it's not any of those. Yeah, so they have a whole thing in, uh, like, uh, in, in the alternate worse world, I uh, think. So Spock, we know that Spock uh, changes the Empire. Well, that right. destroys the Empire and the Cardassians take them over. Oh, wow. So humans are all slaves to the Cardassians in the new thing. and So it's it's totally a Cardassians have won. Uh, aren't things horrible? Oh, great. Uh, kind of parallel worlds. And then they have their various adventures on DS9. But it's, it's, it's a thing where, like, they go back to it out of affection for the weirdness of it. Mm-hmm. Not because they're like, oh, this makes so much sense. We totally need to, you know, use this. So back from the commercial to this thing, whatever it is, episode. Uh, The flag is ceremoniously brought in to the front of the tribal town hall, I guess. The same male Yang speaks. He says that this was the last of the comb cities and they have taken it. What was ours is ours again. He does a, uh, I don't know what to call it, incomplete version of the Pledge of Allegiance, which Kirk quickly follows up upon. Kirk tries to tell them of the tribe back home that also believe this way. Where's your home, they ask. Kirk tells them that it's one of the points of light in the sky. Were you cast out? And Tracy, now continuing to be this big a-hole that he is, says that, yes, Kirk was cast out, and may your God strike me dead if I'm lying. Which, of course, he won't, because (laughs) not a God. Okay, anyway. uh, F this guy, I write. Then... (laughs) 
The Yang points out that Tracy has tried to kill many of them, which is a true and fine point. But Tracy tries to defend himself. But Kirk steps in and says, we're not gods, we're men like you. Tracy then uses Spock and the de demonic look of his pointy ears and eyebrows against him and Kirk. So then the Yang open up the Bible and then there's this picture that looks an awful lot like Spock as a picture of the devil. Dun, dun, dun. Kirk comes in and uh, with a very modern take says, do you all look alike? Can you tell which one of you is evil? But Tracy again steps in. Which, which is one of the like key differences between the Star Trek universe, in which you really can't tell, mm -hmm. right? Tracy could have been a good captain. We don't know. But right. uh, in Star Wars, you can't tell who the bad guys are. They're often red and black. <laughs> right, exactly. It's very easy to tell. <laughs> but Tracy again steps in and points at Spock and says, he has no heart. McCoy tries to say, well, you know, physiology between two different species are, but they bring Spock over. The male Yang leans into Spock's chest. He has no heart, he says. One of them lies, but which one? The Yangs discuss. Picking up what I'm just going to assume is the Constitution, the Yangs speak words. Continue, they say, because if you're evil, your tongue will turn to fire. So obviously now Kirk needs to say it, but he can't remember it. And Tracy yells, uh, saying, he fears to speak them. But notice that Tracy isn't saying anything either. Yeah. Kirk fights to remember, but he can't. Tracy yells again, saying, kill his servant. And they put a, a knife at Spock's, uh, Spock's neck. He can't speak the words. But then Kirk stops them all on their tracks. Doesn't your good book say that good will always win over evil? So they fight. And now I realize why Tracy has won all of these fights up until now, right? To drive home how high the stakes are at this point. Oh my gosh, Kirk hasn't won a fight with him yet. And so of course, Tracy is winning. McCoy says, we need to do something. Triox! <laughs> Triox. <laughs> that's what he used to when he fights Spock. <laughs> but oh, it knocks him out. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I think he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> if only they had some so we have seen elsewhere in our vast uh many episodes of watching the show that they sure do play fast and loose with spock's mind powers yes tangent so there's this great show on youtube it's called the pitch meeting right and the idea is is that they talk about a movie that we've all seen and they you know just poke holes in it and it's really funny and you know if you can laugh about shows that or movies that you love then it's a, it's, a, it's a great little thing. So uh, one of their regular jokes, which I will now use in relation to this episode, is this. So then Spock is going to use telepathy to suggest to the woman that she get the communicator. Oh, uh, so I, I, I didn't know that Spock had that power. Well, he does, because I need him to in the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is exactly every time they do something with Spock is exactly that thing. So there's a, a podcast I listen to, Rob Long, uh, The Martini Shot, and he has a podcast on the guy who pokes holes in, in ideas, right? Okay. A lot of them involve jokes, right? Why the joke right. isn't funny, why it shouldn't be funny because we know this other thing or whatever. And he's like, nobody likes that guy. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole thing right. about like, how, like, don't be that guy. 
you know, you're, you're looking for the humor, you're trying to find the funny, and there's somebody there who's always willing to say, that's not funny because, or that, that won't work because, or this isn't a good, you know, storyline because. Right. It's like, contribute something. Give me something to work with. Right, Don't exactly. Don't just tell me exactly. no. <laughs> right. Yeah, they always say that, you know, I mean, it's part of improv, right? The yeah. Yes, and. Yes, and me, right? Right. So uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about improv. And one of the things they were discussing was like, if you're in or if you're going into a room and you realize there's a rat in there, don't just kill the rat because then the scene's over. But, you know, so like, oh, well, let's develop a plan. Let's see. We can put together. We got to get some boards. We got to get some. You know what I mean? There's like, that's the story. Like, let's develop the plan of like, not just like, boom. OK, next scene, <laughs> you know. Uh so Kirk and Tracy continue to fight. Tracy has the knife now. And then the Lady Yang picks up the communicator. And she opens it up. Trace, uh, Kirk has Tracy in an arm lock. Tracy drops the knife and Kirk grabs it. Puts it up to Tracy's neck. The Yang say to kill him. It is written. But of course, Kirk can't do it. He cuts the strap holding the two of them together just as Sulu beams down. Whew, thank God about that communicator. Also, not sure if the current commander of the ship should be beaming down at this point, but I guess we can assume that Scott's in charge up there. Yeah, actually, Scott's third command. Right. So who knows why Sulu's been taking care of everything? Well, because you want Scotty in the bridge, uh, in the engineering room. I mean, right. have you ever seen Star Trek? <laughs> exactly. Uh, the Yang drops uh, to his knees, calling Kirk a great god. Kirk tells him, get up, listen to me. Kirk then crosses over the crate, and after some protests, he opens the crate and does a great Kirk speech. Not e popolista. We, the people. It's for the chiefs. It's for all people. They must stand for everyone, not just the Yangs, but the Combs, too, or it means nothing. Don't you understand? And the Yang says, I do not understand, but I will try to. I swear it. Kirk then asks the question that I've been wondering, which is, Tracy's guilt is clear, but doesn't our involvement also violate the Prime Directive? Discuss. <laughs> well, I mean, the problem is that they were forced into it, right? Right, yeah, that's, I guess that's true. Yeah, so just like, uh, you know, there are various temporal paradoxes, like, I'm thinking DS9 now, where uh, there's a temporal paradox and the temporal league is there to, like, find out, you know, from, uh, uh, who was the captain? Cisco. Uh, you know, like, what did you do? What, you know, like, and basically it's like, we couldn't help it. Yeah. We were in a situation and we just had to like, improvise. figure out how to get home. <laughs> yeah. We were improvising. We weren't making a bunch of decisions to screw with their culture. Right. We're trying to fix What's this timeline next that Tracy left us. I just showed them the meeting of what they were fighting for. Liberty, freedom. They must be more than words. We will they, leave they, them. He's not, yeah. he's, he's not like, well, you know, here's some uh, learning company courses that you can use. to. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Here's how here. you set up a government. Or like, this is what this means. Here's why we have freedom. So first we had the wars of religion. And then we realized that people shouldn't be fighting over ideology, that we had to have a tolerant society. Uh -huh. And then we realized that you don't want to have kings with all this executive power embodied in one person. You want to separate it both uh across and you know down and so you have federalism but you also have uh you know divided government and okay well <laughs> good
back with that. Uh, so, yes, off they go. But one last thought I have. What about Zulu and Leslie and the other guy who beamed down? Now, how long do they got to hang out on the planet until they're okay to return? Forgot about that. But that's it. That's it. That's the rest of that's the end of that episode. Post-production funnies here. Gene Ronberry loved this script so much that he wanted Paramount to take out a full-page ad in the trades. They said no. But then he asked Dan Robertson saying, look, it's so good. Why don't we just use this as an opener for season three? Which, by the way, there's no guarantee of season three yet at this point. Hasn't been renewed. So Stan Robertson says uh, no. He then pushes NBC to do some on-air promos, which they haven't done since season one for this episode, saying that even Justin believed that this episode was so good, which of course he didn't. And NBC said no. So Gene Roddenberry then sends a letter to the Hollywood Reporter saying that this episode is probably one of Star Trek's finest and you guys should like talk about it. And the Hollywood Reporter, they said nothing, which is no. Still pushing for some kind of spotlight, Gene Roddenberry then makes a deal with the makers of Viewmaster to make some reels based on this episode. And they only did five more of those at Viewmaster. And only this one is from the original series. <laughs> Which is great. Now, the sad part is, is that all of this promotion could only have helped because for the first time, Star Trek falls into third place in its time slot. Dun, dun, dun. But they've got those young men. A key demographic. So that's it. That's all the notes I got for this episode. Uh, any, any other, any other, anything else you want to say about it? Any, anything else you want to know? <laughs> I, I think that's uh, pretty much it. So you know, I, I give this episode a lot of credit. I'm looking at the themes right. about you know the, the the risks of global confrontation, a, a hot, you know, very tense Cold War. Um, you know, the the risk of remember the Doomsday Clock, and we're like minutes to midnight. Right. You know, it's that kind of thinking. And uh, it's interesting to to think about that and the risks involved. And the fact that, like, the fights are goofy and it's a silly parallel universe and, you know, the, the reveals are kind of corny. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I'm looking past that. I'm thinking about the the themes. And I think this is why Roddenberry was so excited about it. I think he'd hit on something that had, like, that were really good themes. Right. It's just that the execution was 1960s television rather than, you know, let's say 1990s serialized television. Right. Exactly. In which this could have been, a, you know, like a four-parter in which, you, you know, you're, wow. you're rest. Well, I mean, uh, you know, you guys. There's a lot teams, more fights. Right? <laughs> well, they, they wouldn't be, though, right? Right. Because no, right. In, in something like DS9, they'd be uh, conversations had about values and the fights would have been about something else. Right. Excellent. All right. Well, that is uh, that. That wraps up that episode for this week. Great episode. Definitely, you and I are a little bit, you know, different on on this. But again, we like different things in 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 the episodes, which is what makes us uh, hopefully very interesting to hear and talk about <laughs> and listen to. So uh, next week is the final episode of season two. It's Assignment Earth, which uh, I believe is the, is it's the backdoor pilot, right, for another show that Roddenberry was hoping to. Uh, to produce with Terry Gar of all people in it. Yep. So uh, I, I only vaguely remember that one. So it'll be fun to go back and rewatch this, uh, this crazy earthbound episode. Well, that's it. That's all we got. 
Come back next week so you can, or in two weeks, come back in two weeks, and uh, you can hear all about that one. It's going to be great. Uh, I don't remember how we end it. Um, <laughs> I know, I say live long and prosper. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, well, that'll wrap it up for this week. Uh, go ahead and, you know, please like, subscribe, comment, do all the fun things that will please help spread the word on this uh, wonderful podcast of ours. And uh, on that note, uh, this is Matt saying goodbye, and from Planet Houston, say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you go, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>